Welcome to This Week in the Warner Archive Collection, where we discuss our newest releases. I'm George Feltenstein, and I'm proud to be joined by my colleagues, Matt Patterson and D.W. Ferranti. Today's Warner Archive Collection will boldly go into the mind of Gene Roddenberry before Star Trek, into a television series that preceded it, where the middle name of the protagonist was none other than... Tiberius. You couldn't William have said it Tiberius better. Rice. Matt, what are we going to talk about today? Well, not only do we have a new television series, but we've got... Two from 1930, early talkies. We have two baseball pictures, one cartoon, and four re, uh, revitalized. Guess, yeah, revitalized. That's a good term. We're bringing them back from being out of print and now in print classics. Take that, price gougers. No longer will you have to pay $90 for the movie you always wanted to own. And of course, we're talking about this way too early, but some of these, uh, it's been reported to us, we're over $150 on eBay. Which is exactly why we have brought them back. <laughs> it's really part of our evil diabolical plan. But in terms of good versus yes. evil, yes. there's nothing better than a wonderful television series that hasn't been seen by people that love a great television series that has been seen by many. And that is Gene Roddenberry's series that preceded Star Trek, The Lieutenant, from 1963 and 64. Matt, Dan, let's talk about The Lieutenant, starring Gary Lockwood. Very interesting show uh, for a number of reasons. The time period, uh, that it's about a Marine during peacetime, but what is going on in the broader world, I'm referring to the brewing conflict in Indochina, a.k.a. Vietnam, it forms a pretty heady background to what's going on. But you can also see uh, characters and tropes and, and characterizations that were not just relevant for fans of the original series of Star Trek, but also Star Trek The Next Generation. Um, specifically, the relationship between Gary Lockwood's character, the lieutenant, and his commanding officer, played by Robert Vaughn, is very similar to the Picard-Riker relationship. You mean the man from UNCLE? Yes. He went on to do that right after this. Right after. Right. As a matter of fact, the series wasn't even wrapped yet before... Captain he, Rambridge, Captain Rambridge left the bridge. Sort of, sort of is not seen in the last four or five. And this TV series takes place in the real world at a real Marine base, Cap Pendleton, which is just south of us here on the way to San Diego. And it's supposed to, and it feels much more uh, realistic, very grounded, yeah, than other military shows. And and this was a show. It, it's not a procedural. But it's about lifetime in on a military base and all the different things that you have to do and the lessons that the lieutenant is learning about how to be a better... A better officer, a better Marine. Yeah. And a better human being. And a better yeah, human better being. Man. And I think because he's got a great commanding officer. Played by... <laughs> Robert Vaughn. That's right. <laughs> now let's give a little historical perspective. Gene Roddenberry in the early 60s had written for other television series... And this is after having been in the military and I believe being an L.A. police. Yeah, yeah, is that correct? yeah. There's a there's a story that which may or may not be apocryphal about Gene walking into in his full motorcycle cop regalia and, and basically causing a television producer to think he was being arrested. But Gene was actually giving him a script. Uh -huh. <laughs> and uh, this was MGM television in the early 60s, which was really a a hotbed of creativity. And Norman Felton was producing shows like Dr. Kildare 
And that was going on with Arena Productions, and that's where eventually Man From U.N.C.L.E. came to pass. And meanwhile, Gene Roddenberry arrived at MGM Television with this script about the lieutenant, and it got greenlit and became an NBC television show in September of 1963. And it starred Gary Lockwood, who is not yet 30, and this was his third television series. Wow. So it really is kind of an impressive He, he wasn't quite the green lieutenant. <clears throat> not at all. Not at all. But I had known about this series and having worked with the MGM library for many years, was very interested in it, but I had not seen most of the episodes. And I think that many people who are listening to us now and many people who we've encountered, like when we were at Comic-Con mm -hmm. and talked about the lieutenant, they all talk about, yeah, I've heard about it. But I haven't seen it. Or maybe seen like one episode or two episodes that have been floating around. But this is a uh, very rare bird for Star Trek fans. Ooh, Absolutely. Rare it's bird. Good. Ooh, ooh. Uh, when I, I was at the Star Trek convention last year, 2011, I, I met Gene Roddenberry's son. Uh, Rod. At the convention told him that we were going to be working on this, and he himself said he had only seen one episode, and it's the episode in which his mother, Major ah. Barrett, uh -huh. appeared with Leonard Nimoy in The Highest Tradition, which we previewed. And, one, and she is but one of a number of future Federation personnel who make guest starring appearances. And on who the might Lieutenant. they be? Well, uh, Walter Koenig comes to mind. Um, Leonard Nimoy, who is fantastic, playing a exuberant movie producer. With shirtless. A, <laughs> it's with shirtless a, Spock. With, I would even say that he's slightly uh, kid stays in the picture the mm. Leonard Nimoy character. Yeah, it could be. Nichelle Nichols. Who's Nichelle Nichols. Very important. The episode right before. Yeah, and she, I thought she was fantastic. And, and that episode, episode was considered a little controversial and wasn't aired in certain parts of the country because of the prejudices of the time. And uh, if you'll notice on that episode, it says introducing. Yes. Oh, right. Introducing. But um, I understand that there was a screening of the episode. I believe it's called To Set It Right. And there was a screening of it at the Paley Center in New York a couple of years ago in which Nichelle Nichols, I read this on the Internet, spoke about how progressive Gene Roddenberry was in giving her that role in that episode. And so they screened an episode of Lieutenant in this little short seminar on women's roles in 60s television. Wow. Uh, so that that's really provocative. But I think only Mr. Shatner and DeForest Kelly aren't part of the lieutenant. I don't know if James Doohan is around. I think he might be or I may not. I'm not be. sure. We have this uh, series. This this It's just one season, but it's divided into two parts. It's uh, how many episodes? It's 29 episodes plus... Plus a Plus very, very, very special bonus. A bonus theatrical feature that is expanded from two episodes. Uh, it was not unusual for MGM in the 60s to take two episodes from a television series and expand them into theatrical features for international release. This was done a lot with The Man from U.N.C.L.E., but also with... Uh, Kane's Hundred and The Asphalt Jungle and certain of their other television series. With this show, however, two episodes of The Lieutenant were put together under the title To Kill a Man, which is the name of the last episode. But Gene Roddenberry actually asked for and got extra money to film new bridging sequences for this international theatrical feature, To Kill a Man. So we have that theatrical motion picture version of 
the two television episodes plus the extra footage as the last thing on our final disc in this. And and it sort of is a is a you know for a a, for a a short lived series it makes a very fitting Dino Ma because the series was about being a marine in peacetime and as history shows very shortly those marines weren't at peacetime which is what the the movie is very is concerned at the the Gary Lockwood character goes to Vietnam to oversee training and gets involved in the conflict there are also a raft of guest stars in these shows that represent the finest in young actors of the day including Bill Bixby yeah. Uh, Rip Torn. Rip Torn, Ed Asner. Linda Evans. Richard Anderson has a recurring role. Richard Anderson for you fans of Six Million Dollar Man. It only ran one year. It had very limited viewings and syndication because of that. And it was on TNT very briefly in the early 90s. Just this has not been seen in almost 50 years. I think it will be revelatory because it's intelligent, it's well-written, it's well-acted, and it is really a showcase for the talents of so many people, but particularly Gary Lockwood and Robert Vaughn, who are terrific. Who are different. They're, all their scenes together are very, uh, they pop. And yeah, they, they ring true. Yeah. 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 And we also should mention that I think two episodes are directed by a rather super director, namely Richard Donner. Oh, yes, yes. So we have to take our hat off to Richard Donner because we kind of like Wait, him. Is there, is there a special cut of uh, the Richard <laughs> Donner cut? <laughs> the Donner cut of the lieutenant. Oh, that would be Does fantastic. not exist, let me and just say no that. And there's no Marlon Brando, you know. No, you know, but there uh, is Dennis Hopper. That's right, yet, I mean, the amount of yeah. people you will find in these episodes, including character actors. And I just, since we uh, are doing a bit of a Star Trek riff, Con, of course, Ricardo Montalban. In thirty episodes, you know it's you've got a lot of people popping up in each one, and they, and they, this is not a, a cheap show. Like oh, they've no, got no. a, there, you know, that doesn't feel like it's like three characters in a room. It's like a whole squads, and like you know they're on the military base, and they have jets. I mean, like that, you know, because they had cooperation from the military, absolutely, and they showed off the hardware and the training at the time. I mean, it, it's it's uh, very substantial. Yeah. And I think that uh, the audiences of the time weren't appreciative of how special it was. It really was ahead of its time. Was it? What was the time slot? It was Saturday night. Yeah. And Saturday night was a big television night, not unlike nowadays when people are not watching television on Saturday night. Except us watching Doctor <laughs> Who. But, that's, that's different. But it? that's different, you know. But I think the demise of the show was also due to what was going on in the world at the time. And that the was what I read that, that, the that it, was, it was more a reflection of the networks becoming nervous about the content yep. because of and the brewing conflict. Not of the lack of accordion music. <laughs> no, absolutely. And one, Nana That would have been my note. But in any event, please look for The Lieutenant at warnerarchive.com as parts one and two, 29 episodes plus bonus theatrical feature, not in Mr. Roddenberry's IMDb. Filmography, I'll have you know. So they will have to correct and add this theatrical feature. You can actually find posters for the international yeah. theatrical release on the internet. He's in a jungle. And uh, I'll just say, um, if you send us an actual snail mail message, oh yeah, I will personally send you a special souvenir lieutenant dog tag. 
address to come at the end of the podcast. Yeah, you have to listen to the end. But these dog tags were uh, given out in the gift bags that we handed out at Comic-Con. And they are not rich Corinthian leather. No, they're made of... No, it's stamped metal. <laughs> but <laughs> American stamped metal. Yes, yes. Made in America, 100%. Yeah, so we, we know that. But I think we should now get into our Warner Archive Collection time machine and head back to the year 1930. We're going to go around the sun. Well, we're going to start with a movie that stars a woman who is known as the aristocrat of the screen, Elsie mm. Ferguson, who had a, uh, she was a big stage star and had a big silent film career. She appeared in this talkie and... It is my understanding that this talkie and only one of her silent films survives, that none of her other films survive, that this woman had a long career that virtually doesn't exist except for this film, which is called Scarlet Pages, released in 1930, directed by Ray Enright, and a film version of a play that she starred in on Broadway called Scarlet Pages. Of course. She has a very uh, well. 19- for one thing, we need to inform people that the film is very much a science fiction film because she plays the leading criminal defense attorney in New York, and she's a woman. And I think that's preposterous. Which is, and that's kind of what's fascinating to me about it is that, uh, and she's you know you think of Harry's Law and you think mm-hmm. of it, Law and Order, Special Victims, and nobody would even think twice about that. But in those days, right up front, you know that she has a deep dark secret. And a deep, dark voice. And, and a deep, dark voice with the Broadway quaver. A little bit of the Mrs. Patrick Campbell. I know how to project there. you, film actors. And you know that. Yeah, but she was a silent screen star. That's right. what's so cool. That she had a screen career in silence and also was big on the Broadway stage. There's that wonderful scene where the bad cabaret girl is giving her testimony on the stand and we have that lingerie leg flash. Which is very much like not the Warner Brothers, not the Dan, lingerie uh, leg flash. Dan, that really yes. stuck out. For oh, you. it did because it's the, so the lingerie, a shining, leg flash. Yes. a shining beacon in a courtroom uh, scene. Yes, I it, can see her garter from here. It mostly takes place, in, I guess, in the in the play. It would have been the whole second act. Would have the been courtroom, in yeah. the courtroom, gentlemen of the jury. <laughs> and yes, and it and it and very much had that, but it did have this feel of because, as you were saying uh, before, George, it. It had this feel of a television courtroom drama. Yeah. yeah. It reminded me of the episode of Perry Mason that Betty Davis. The Betty Davis was in. Yeah, me too. Yes, yes. <laughs> but but that's interesting, right? Because they yeah. didn't have that archetype no. before. And yeah. this is, again, you it's know, what made it revolutionary. Years. A lady lawyer. She's, oh, my goodness. She's, she's a lady lawyer. She's the leading criminal defense attorney. And uh, a young man played by Grant Withers, who also stars in the, the next movie, the next movie Dancing, Dancing Sweeties, comes to her to defend his girlfriend, who's a cabaret dancer, who has murdered her father and stands by the murder. Yeah, she won't tell anyone why. But she says it was justified. And so it takes a woman to get the story out of her. And then the reveal at the end is is a lot of fun. It all merrily concludes in a short amount of time. This is a film that's very hard to see, and it's, again... One of our great pleasures is to bring the hard-to-find films to the public. And speaking of which, the other early talkie we're bringing this week (laughs) is also rarely seen, but equally interesting and unique and starring Grant Withers. The opening titles alone. 
opening titles I'm, are the best opening, part. They're, Dancing yeah. Sweeties. Just the opening titles, I was just, you know, jaw open going, and you this is no fantastic. Music. No that music. That I enjoy. It Superimposed just, titles, it's and, it, and, it's, and it's it's two pairs of feet, a man dancing. and a woman, and they're just tap dancing, and it's just their feet. And boy, are they dancing, and it goes on for the whole title credit sequence, and it's it's really great. And we restored the title so they're not cut off on the side anymore. That alone is worth buying. Well, the there you go. The film is, you know, uh, something of a melodrama, but also something of a mini-musical and something of a comedy. It really is a mishmash, but it's all set in the world of the dance hall crazies. And the leading lady is Sue Carroll, who was in a lot of silent pictures and didn't have very much of a career in talkies. Instead, she drifted into becoming, I don't want to say drifted, she changed careers and became one of the first powerful female talent agents oh. in the business and the oh, Sue Carroll agency. Because I was actually going to ask, I thought she was really great in dancing suits. She was married to Alan Ladd and really oh. was responsible for his career and the career oh. of a lot of other performers in the late 30s and early 40s and uh, was a major uh, player in the agency business. Uh, she had her own agency, but so she left acting to become an agent, which I think is very interesting. Her co-leading man, Grant Withers will, if you're a fan of Westerns, you will recognize Grant Withers. He had a very long career, and a lot of them were Westerns. He was a good friend of John Ford and John Wayne, so he, he appeared throughout films. And his career has not withered away one <laughs> bit. I, and both films were directed by Ray Enright. I thought that this was kind of a... Uh, not exactly swingers, but it felt like because it was a youth movie we, yeah. before youth movies. It's like because uh, there was a generational conflict. What are you doing with your time? I'm dancing. I'm Dad. dancing. Look at all my silver cups. Gotta keep moving. And you know, like that—that that was a you know, what are you doing with your life kind of thing. And this is these kids just wanted to dance, and uh, there were all the forces against them, including themselves. Why don't we just? take something totally out of left field and talk ah. about baseball movies from the 1950s. I think we should. Because we've got two of those coming out as well. From 1953, First Big Leaguer. First up at bat. Yeah. First up at bat uh, featuring someone whose career actually stretches back to the era of Scarlet ah. Pages and Dancing Sweeties, ah. Edward G. Robinson. Ah. Edward G. Robinson. Well, this, not bad. This would be the equivalent <laughs> of a, what, you know, if it's a backstage movie, this would be like an in the dugout, but even behind the dugout. Behind the stadium. Nah, behind that's the stadium. Right. Ah. <laughs> uh, the whole film takes place in and around uh, spring training camp. And uh, Edward G. Robinson plays a retired ball player who manages the camp for the New York Giants. And there are actual, not the dastardly Brooklyn Dodgers. And there are actual New York Giants in the movie. Carl Hubble plays himself, uh, Al Campanis, and, and there's definitely a few more. But yeah, there's real New York Giants, real baseball stuff. If you're a baseball fan, you'll get a lot of the movie. And Edward G. Robinson is and he's terrific. really, if really you're good. A fan of high-waisted pants. That too. And skinny waist. And, and a non yes. a non-dancing, non-singing Vera Allen. That's why I said skinny waist. Vera <laughs> Allen, indeed. Skinny and Jeff indeed. Richards from uh, Seven Brides to Seven Brothers, Crest of the Wave, lots of and, 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 and another things. wax stalwart, or I just a personal favorite, Richard Jekyll. This is the, directed by Robert Aldrich. Who later went on to do The Dirty Dozen, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, many great films. One of the prime directors of the late 50s and 1960s. And this is, I think, one of his very first feature films. Sort of like behind the stadium, 
Bull Durham-ish, very sort of like like this is this is the actual work a day, and this is also before baseball stars, although they were stars, were well, these are like working class and, ball players. And no, there there are not even minor leaguers yet at this yeah, point. Right. There, these are high school kids who are who've gonna, been recruited. Right, their best outcome is to be sent to a farm league, and then right. eventually become a big leaguer. Yeah, yes. and yeah, so you have people at the beginning of their career. People at the end of their career and and the arcs in between and a little bit of behind the scenes right. and running a ball business. And yeah, and, and it's Aldrich. It's a little bit of a dark. Yeah, it's film. not a happy, happy film. But there's it, hard one joy in it, and yes. there's heart in it. Yeah, and a really heart. nice yeah. ending baseball game. So we go ahead three more years, staying at MGM for a lighter side of baseball and a little eager. Oh, something yeah. of a seventh inning itch. I was just going to call it Great American Pastime. I thought it, we should mention that, the title. It is, indeed. And, and if that and Great that, American Pastime is to be caught between yeah. Anne Francis and Ann Miller, I'm all for it. That's the part that stretches the credibil- my credibility in watching the film. <laughs> yeah. I, the, I, I, the mysterious charms of Tom Ewell. <laughs> wow. Whatever happens to him is great. Yeah. <laughs> so to give a little historical background here, Tom Ewell was the star of The Seven Year Itch, which had been a big hit the year before at 20th Century Fox. He was starring opposite Marilyn Monroe as a middle-aged man going through a midlife crisis. And, of course, you have him here as a middle-aged man going through a midlife crisis. And here his beautiful wife is played by Anne Francis. And yeah, yet right. he's finding <laughs> some temptation yeah. with equally beautiful Anne Miller. Right. And no offense to Anne Miller either, but he's already married to Anne Francis. What is you, wrong with you? You can't do well, better than Honey West. Yeah. He wants it all. He sure does. Because he also... And what better way to get it all than by teaching a Little League team to be yeah. closer to your son who promptly goes to work on for the, the other, other team. team. <laughs> well, he, his character is supposed to be a lawyer here. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if my dad was a lawyer, too, I'd probably want to be on the other team. Yeah, and it's probably worth mentioning that it was written by uh, Nathaniel Benchley. Son uh, of. Son of and father of. That's right. And uh, also also the author of another Warner Archive title, Sweet Hostage. Indeed. Uh, let's get into the Warner Archive time machine again and go forward to an undisclosed time in the future. <laughs> Why is this man laughing? Well, it's You must be laughing about Heathcliff. I certainly am. This and Dingbat. This cartoon was made by Ruby Spears, and it stars Heathcliff, probably the most streetwise orange cat that I know of, and Dingbats, which were a group of three haunted Halloween-esque characters who uh, right, would take on... Yes? You're, you're doing them a disservice. The Dingbats are... Temporary job agency who'll do any job in any place, staffed by a vampire dog, yes. an overweight skeleton, yes. and a jack-o'-lantern who's all mouth and no limbs. I but think that you're right. Tell I, me about the vampire dog, Matt. All of these characters do have a very uh, unique design to them. The vampire dog, he speaks with a Hungarian accent. Blah, blah. A little like that. And his big power that he has is not sucking the blood of women, no. but that he can turn into not a bat, but just a smaller flying version. A small version dog with reptilian wings. Of himself. Yeah. Essentially his cloak. The chubby skeleton is actually like a curly character with suspenders and a plunger on his head. But voiced by Don Messick and not Frank Welker of Jabberjaw. 
interesting. Yeah, I guess Welker said, I'm done with Curly. <laughs> and he can transform himself, since he's a bunch of bones, into any uh, various object. Like a lamp. And the jack-o'-lantern just really yells at people. Mm -hmm. Since he can't really do anything except hop around. And meanwhile, Heathcliff, voiced by the great Mel Blanc, is involved with the activities that Heathcliff is in his own adventures. So we, like, get, a, we get a dingbat adventure where they do something like that. I saw them take over a, a gym. Right. Manage a gym. Because who else but a trio of creeps to manage a gym? Meanwhile, Heathcliff has his own adventures revolved around avoiding the dog catcher, which I always just was like, why is the dog catcher going after a cat? Shouldn't Heathcliff just say, I'm not a dog? And not, stealing fish. Yeah, pretty much. From and the, going out on dates. So that brings us to our out of print, now back in print, or our that relisted. That was a phenomenal segue. But <laughs> these next four films are back in print. and uh, Back in business. Kind of one of the things that we've been taking and doing is taking some of the more rare and hard to find earlier home video releases which now sell for big bucks in on, used copies on, in used copies and we're making them available for everybody on new copies actually one of the interesting things that we found is when we bring these things out again and start talking about them a lot of people never knew they were out and so they pick up these copies and a lot new. of people have never heard of some of the movies and they're new to them which is kind of exciting and the first one we're going to talk about is uh, Wilt Stillman's film from 1994, Barcelona. Was this on Laserdisc, too? Absolutely. I mean, because this was like, a, you know, like for 1994. Indie, yeah. Yeah. Indie film fans. Yeah, Laserdisc yeah. was still in its, it was at its uh, zenith. This one still has the same extras and extra features. Uh, it's the same DVD right. it always was. It's just back in print now through Warner Archive Collection. Right. But while we're staying on the letter B, let's go from Barcelona to the boy who could fly. 1986. This is a film about a girl who's completely, and I would say ruined, her entire romantic She's never life. never going to have another boyfriend. It's ruined by a boy who may or may not be able to fly. And he doesn't talk. After this relationship, how can anybody compare? And uh, this movie has an appearance by pre-Wonder Years Fred, Fred Savage. Savage. A very young Fred Savage is very good in this. this is, I did really enjoy it. This is from an interesting fantasy. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Slash. Uh, sort of like an American magical realist. It, it's it's a, yeah. a film that def defies traditional genre description. And had a little bit of, a, of trouble finding an audience. It wasn't a big box office success, but it had a cult following. And that's why we're glad to make it available again on DVD. Next up would be a film that most definitely doesn't have a cult following because it had wide mainstream appeal, which is Annette Benning in Love Affair. Starring a... What's his name? What <laughs> she's married to. Yeah, it's the guy... Didn't he, Dick like Tracy? Dick Tracy, that guy. Uh, Shirley MacLaine's brother. Right. What's his name? Yeah, yeah. Warren I don't know. A minor talent. This a, is a remake yeah. of the 1939 Love Affair, which then was remade as 1957's An Affair to Remember, and the story once again served as the backdrop for this 1994... Romantic comedy, drama, melodrama, which had a wonderful, not cameo, but special supporting role with Catherine Hepburn playing yeah. the grandmother of Warren Beatty in uh, really a very, very remarkable, probably her most important uh, performance before her, she passed away, mm -hmm. I would say. 
I grew up outside New York, and uh, George uh, lived in the area for a very long time, and neither of us has been to the top of the Empire State Building. That's right. And that's what they're supposed to meet at the top of the Empire State Building together, you know, without communicating, because this is pre-internet, although in 94 I had a website, but that's okay. And that's the, the whole crux of the film. And if fair to remember, became hugely popular because of Sleepless in Seattle. And Sleepless in Seattle happened several years after this film was released. So it's kind of like Warren Beatty was a little bit ahead of his time Mm -hmm. for a change uh, in wanting to remake this film. And it was really a celebration of how much, and I'm not saying this to be glib or funny, I'm saying this sincerely, how much he truly does love his wife. I've had the Uh, pleasure of meeting them. They're a wonderful couple. And, you know, this celebrates love and marriage in a really beautiful way. And I think that's why he wanted to make the film. And that comes through stronger than anything. And that's why he chose such a well-beloved chestnut of a story. And it was brought into the modern day by a very talented team behind the scenes. You know, it's like an homage nested inside a larger homage. And I got really upset when in the middle of that very tender moment she said, I want to see Bonnie and Clyde. (laughs) But it actually never happened, folks. We're just plugging another Warner Brothers movie. But going to the last of our Warner Brothers movies... Boom, 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 Dan, this is basically all about your love of two things. Westerns and dinosaurs. Yeah, not just dinosaurs, but stop motion dinosaurs. And put them all together. And you... actually, this. Let's say what it is. I'm getting to that. Oh, I'm sorry. In 1969, a young man, a boy, a small boy, a boy that was just learning to read, was given a coloring book. And that coloring book was called The Valley of the Guanji. And his life would never be the same. Now, unfortunately, Valley of Guanji was not a very large commercial success. And so my opportunities to see it didn't come about for many, many years. Didn't really run on TV in the Boston area. Didn't hit the theater. So all I had was this coloring book. So The Valley of the Guanji became this giant movie in my head. So, of course, it could never live up to my expectations. But its charms are enormous. Valley of Guanji began life as a conception of Willis O'Brien, who was the special effects designer behind King Kong. He had this dream of making this movie of basically cowboys versus dinosaurs in a forbidden valley. It went through many aborted attempts at production. Finally, his protege, the great Ray Harryhausen, had a chance to make the movie in a altered form as Valley of the Guanji, and it has the great, great Ray Harryhausen effect sequences. Now, the rest of the movie, you know, the cowboy stuff, it stars James Franciscus, who's always charming and great to see. Would you call the the roping of the dinosaur yes. sequences are so great? And the dinosaurs are not on a spaceship. <laughs> they, if they, that would have been the unmade sequel. Yeah. Well, somebody may be making that after all. So there's a, you know essentially there's a, a Wild West show desperately in need of a bigger audience. 
They follow an archaeopteryx into a forbidden valley filled with dinosaurs. And, but it's in Mexico. In Mexico. Just want to add that and, it's a little and different. Mexico, 19th century. So they end up roping a tyrannosaur yes. and bringing it back to civilization. The and Mexican what could go wrong? Things the, can go really wrong. It it followed a you know a, a broad it's template a, of you King Kong. You can see that there's a Kongish thing going on. Yes. Because they they Although, bring no interspecies love story. No. And which of the dinosaurs missing. ate the worm? That's what I want to know. Uh, well, that was the dinosaur that passed out. I was also thinking the interesting in this film is very often these days when people do like a humans versus dinosaur thing, the humans are portrayed as being absolutely helpless, run in fear. But these cowboys totally, as I think realistically, like human beings being the horrible predators that we are, stand up and take down these dinosaurs. It's like the Mexic the Ma Magnificent Seven in Mexico Jurassic Park. Yeah. They only had blanks in their guns. Uh, when they go out, oops, because they were a cowboy they're, act, they're, so they, yeah. they could not shoot the dinosaurs. I thought that was a pretty funny plot point because then they were left to their ropes and sticks and fire. The scene where the, the cowboy is fighting the pterodactyl hand yeah. to hand. And that's classic Harry yeah. yeah. Yes, totally. And I just want to, without spoiling anything. And a tribute anything, to the, the pterodactyl sequence in King Kong. They rope it up, rope up a, a big dino. And they take it into town and, of course, take it to the bullfighting arena where the first place I would, of course, take a dinosaur to to show it off. And um, as we as, – if you can guess or you're familiar with King Kong, it does not go well. And there the is – poor elephant. <laughs> that, that was sad. That was so sad. And – the uh, but no elephants were harmed in the making. Yes, of it was this a stop motion yes, elephant. People. Definitely was not it? in the making of this podcast I, either. The final scene is uh, just classic. It's full of uh, maybe perhaps even unintended symbolism with man and his fight with the gods and destiny. And as previously mentioned, all of these uh, back in print releases have all the same material that were on the original DVD releases. So this does have a very good documentary on the making of the film, and Ray Harry has. And so uh, that's pretty much it for uh, this week's release. That wraps it up for this week. Oh, we, we, we were not wrapped up yet because we... I was going to oh, say, I'm we sorry. hope you won't forget on each that we yes. want to hear from you. And remember, uh, we've sweetened the pot. Jerry Ordway poster and Lieutenant Dog Tag. Let me give you the address because you can get not just a Warner Archive exclusive poster by Jerry Ordway for Shazam, but you will also get a Lieutenant Dog Tag. A Lieutenant Dog Tag collectible. Also, we request that you actually ask us a question. That's the qualifying point. Ask us a question, but it must come by mail. Please send your question to Warner Archive Podcast, Building 160-8, 3400 Riverside Drive, Burbank, California, 91522. And that wraps up our <laughs> Warner Archive Collection podcast for today. Be sure to listen for our next podcast the next time we come around. Meanwhile, I am George Feltenstein. I'm Matt Patterson. D.W. Franny. Signing wow. off and wishing you... All best wishes until the next Warner Archive Collection podcast. Guanji! Guanji!